welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. It's your host, Thomas Pierce, as always here to model healthy communication for men with a guest who is inspired and inspiring. My guest this week is Michael Tate Barkley. He's an attorney and the author of Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men. It's a memoir about his life, about growing up and coming out as a gay man in a fundamentalist, religiously conservative household in the South, and also his battle with addiction as a young adult. I won't give it all away, and we'll jump right into the episode. Here in this uh, segment, I had some audio issues, and and Tate is answering the first question I asked him, which is about, why did you decide to write a book, and why specifically a memoir? Well, you know, this this started out, the writing really didn't start out as a a book, necessarily. I I wrote the first words to, to the book, in 2013, and I think that, that, that it, the, the, the thoughtful way to put this is that I had a tumultuous relationship with my dad, and my dad passed away in 2012, and uh, I was still struggling with a lot, trying to reconcile a lot of things, that um, a lot of things in my relationship with my dad and, and with our family. So I, I had gone into recovery some years before, and I had sort of come from that experience of writing things down to sort of work through them. So I just started writing about our relationship and writing about sort of the life and times that he and I had. And and so I, I did that. And I wrote, you know, maybe 15, 20 pages. And it was really more just trying to get stuff out. So I thought, well, it'd be fun to just type it all out and read it. So I gave it to our transcriptionist at work. And and uh, she typed it out and she gave it back to me and then I got really busy and about four months later she came knocking on my door and she said do you have more transcription for me and I said well I mean I've been, I gave you some this, this morning she said no about your book and I said what book and she said you know the book about you and your dad and she says I want to know how it ends so and I said really <laughs> so that's that's how I it, it kind of started I'm like well, maybe I will write a book about that. And um, so I sat down and wrote 658 pages, which was basically a chronology of my life. And I uh, became involved with a strategic editor and publisher. And she said, you know what? Uh, I think maybe we need to trim this down some. And she said, there's a lot of stories, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of stories about coming out. And there's a lot of stories about getting sober. But you, your relationship with your dad is probably the most interesting thing about this. And to have those two things spiraling around that rather tumultuous relationship, she said, I think is there's a lot you have to share with others that, that others will connect with. And uh, so that's what we did. And so here we are about three years later, and um, we have Sunday dinners, moonshine, and men. So interesting. How did it feel to have your like, personal life story analyzed through the lens of sellability (laughs) you know well and and um that was you know i as i shared with you i'd been in recovery for a long time i've been clean and sober about 24 years now and 
And part of the tradition in the 12-step work that I had done is to do a lot of writing. And that was just part of how we sort of worked through what we needed to work through. And and so writing was a natural place for me to do that. And, and sharing, you know, at least in that protected group, was sort of natural for me. Um, but the... The, but having it looked at the lens of a general market was was a big challenge, you know. Um, I, I eventually agreed, you know. I said, "Yeah, this." It's, it's like my publisher said. She said, "You know, everyone's had a complicated relationship with a parent, and I think you'll find that a lot of people are going to relate to that story and how life happens around." And there's no question, despite my love hate relationship with my dad. It was he was the most impactful person in my life, you know, and that's just that, um, you know, for better or for worse, depending upon the situation. And so I had to get used to the idea of sharing that with a lot of other people. But eventually I became comfortable with it because, you know, the feedback I've gotten, you know, on the drafts and stuff was really good. So 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 I'm I'm uh, I'm now excited about it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, awesome. So looking back at your upbringing, what were the circumstances or elements at play you think that led you to susceptibility when it comes to addiction? You know, I, I think every, I believe personally everyone is susceptible, by the way. I'm not, there's nothing unique necessarily about that, but as you've reflected and processed, you know, what were the, the factors there? Yeah, I think that there there were several factors, and, and, and to sort of blast back to, to when I was really young, I I, I was born in, in uh, rural North Carolina, uh, very conservative, and our family was you know went to a very conservative fundamentalist church, and you know to give you an idea of, of, of what the what it was like, it's like I mean. You were your purported sin, whether you were adulterer or homosexual or whatever. That's what you are. You are your purported sin, and 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 they're thinking in that, you know, it's not okay. And it's not only okay for us to shame you. You should shame yourself. And um, uh, you know, by the time I was probably in fifth or sixth grade, I realized I was attracted to other guys, and um, it was made very clear to me by everyone in my world in that environment that that's an abomination and a sin against God. So that it that didn't help. Let's just put it that way. I, I never felt comfortable sharing about my true self um, ever. And I want to tell you, the first time we moved to Houston, where I'm at now, when I was 12, and the first time that I had a drink of beer, I was in seventh grade, and we lived in this big, sprawling apartment complex off the Gulf Freeway in Houston, and there was a bayou behind there. And my buddy Bruce, he scored a 12-pack. I don't, you know, of these Miller. It used to be called the Champagne Beer, the Miller High Life, little mm-hmm. seven ounce ponies. I had two or three of those, and the beer buzz I called on the banks of that bayou was the best feeling I'd ever had. And and all of a sudden, all that sadness that I felt, all that repression that I put myself through it all just felt so much better and so so I really do think my certainly my fear and it was a fear Tom my fear of of sharing who I really was with others was a big driver behind certainly me reaching out 
to alcohol. And like I said, that beer buzz I had that night in seventh grade was the best beer buzz I ever had. And I chased it for another 20-some years before I got sober. Uh, um, and, and, and drinking was how I coped. Drinking's how I communicated. I mean, drinking's how I did everything, um, just about. So, so I, I think that that had a lot to do with it. And I grew up in a very hyper-masculine household. You go, you play football, you go hunting, you chase women, you, that's what you do. Otherwise, you are less than when it comes to being a man. And that was the environment I was raised in. And, and when you're really gay, <laughs> you know, the chasing <laughs> women part's not that appealing. Uh, so, so yeah. Uh, so I, drinking just made it all so much easier, it seemed. And, and I think by the time I got to law school, I was drinking alcoholically, no doubt about it, drinking to cope on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you ever miss it? You know, I don't. I don't miss drinking. And, and here's why. I, I, I look, I, I was lucky that, that as I worked through the 12 steps for me, like I said, I got sober. There's there many ways to get sober, but that's how I got sober. And um, um, the final three years of my drinking were hideous. I mean, I lost a very lucrative law practice. I lost my house. I lost all my friends. And I find myself found myself living with my parents again after having lost all that. When when you hit that kind of rock bottom, um, it it helps you not miss drinking so much. But I also recognize that I had a lot of good times while drinking. Met a lot of fun people. Mm-hmm. Man, I rip and roared and tore all over the United States and Canada and. Mexico, and had a hell of a time in many instances. I also did a lot of stupid shit and <laughs> hurt hurt some people. And yeah. uh, you know what I mean. So, yep. so whenever I get to thinking nostalgically and romantically about drinking, I think about that final three years, and then I go, you know, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Just my. Uh my girlfriend and I, we each stopped drinking this year in January. Yeah. And Good. I, yeah, it's very similar. I don't necessarily miss it, but I do think that there is, there's something about that raw, this like energy that comes out of people that is in itself intoxicating, mm-hmm. you know, but I think there are ways to find that without sacrificing health and losing control. <laughs> you know, I agree, you know, and, and I, I shared with you that first beer buzz, you know, I had on the banks of that bayou in Houston. There was a water pipe that ran across this bayou, and a lot of the guys would walk across that water pipe back and forth, and it was really high, and if you lost your balance, you fair up, fell relatively far into the bayou. And I was always too scared to do it. And um, the night I copped that beer buzz for the first time, I walked across that thing I damn near ran across that water pipe. <laughs> I was brave. I was like Superman. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, the impact that makes on a 12-year-old. Like, man, give me some more of this. Right. <laughs> Look what I did tonight, you know. And, and, man, like I said, I chased that same 
same buzz for a long time trying to keep it. But but what was even worse about it is is I was I was not only repressing my sexuality and who I was. That just became how how I conducted all my feelings. I, I didn't communicate. I just sort of repressed everything. I would repress upset. I would fail to build boundaries. I would, you know, never share when 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 upset, and 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 often that would turn into just an explosion, and then no one would go, who in the hell is this person? Where's our sweet, you know, little Michael Tate Barkley who just blew up at us? And you know, being an alcoholic was not helpful to my ability to communicate with those I loved and who loved me. And uh, I, I, I honestly feel like when I got sober, Tom, I totally had to start over uh, on just the most basic things about being a man. And um, so it's been quite the journey. Sobriety for me has been quite the journey. It's like starting my life all over again and having to relearn everything all over again. Do you have an example of when you say you, things you had to relearn about being a man? Yeah, I, I have to, I, I'll, uh, for example, I, I, I'll tell you this, that uh, when, when it would come to romantic relationships, wh- whether they were when I were trying to be, when I was trying to be straight or when I eventually came out, and if, if someone, if someone I was dating said something or did something that caused me offense, I would never say anything. Because I was afraid that if I would said that if I said something, if they broke a boundary, that, you know, they wouldn't want to hang around me anymore. So I would just say nothing. And if it would happen repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, I would explode on them. Mm-hmm. And then when you look like you're a rager, no one wants to be around you, I, I don't think. And, and and that would come out in me. Um, as I got sober, I learned that it's better to, to to call it when it happens. To say, "Look, I'm not comfortable with what you just said, and here's why I'm not comfortable with what you just said. Um, uh, I'm not comfortable when you presume you're going to stay all weekend. You know, I have plans on Sunday with my family. Um, I had to relearn." To communicate that's basic communication about sharing boundaries with others. I I had to learn that all over again. And and because I'd never before my husband, I met my husband, I never had a relationship that lasted more than about three or four months. And it was all because I would say nothing when I felt offended or when something wasn't comfortable for me. Um uh, and so that is an, a huge example of what I had to learn all over again in, in, in recovery. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's a great, it's a great example. And I, I think it's actually really, it's simple, but I don't think most people know how to communicate like that. And say, for example, when you do X, I feel Y. Because it's, it's so simple, it's so direct, it's unemotional and you know evidence oriented but it's really hard to dissect it out and get away from the reaction I feel when someone does something is so intense and it's easier just kind of to blurt so I think that's a powerful 
lesson for lesson for anyone listening. And I even th- th- just thought of examples in my recent life where I could I could use that format more. Um, and I and I wonder too if that is also part of just the male conditioning because thinking about how boys communicate, it's really more around who can push other people's boundaries the most and defend yeah. their own the most aggressively. Right. There's no doubt about that. And and I you know, I have an example in the book and, and I go into more detail in the book. I was playing football and this is going I'm blasting way back to like eighth grade when I'm playing football. And man and um in those days we're talking about 1978 1979 Texas so the last thing yeah the last thing you wanted to be was a fag sorry for any listeners that are offended by that but that's the last thing you wanted to be labeled and um and and still true today in a lot of places for 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 young guys uh it's just not healthy to be labeled that in some places and um I had one of the guys call me that and they kept calling me. When I talk about boundaries, and instead of just saying, no, don't call me that, and being forthright about it, I just shrugged it off. And he kept doing it over a series of weeks. And then one day, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm talking I'm 13 at this point, and one day this guy he comes up and he calls me a fag and he flicks me on my ear, which he'd done several times. Very, very much a bully, very condescending. And a man in in Tom, I just lost it, totally lost it, mm-hmm. and I kicked him in the genital, and then I hit him, and I pushed him on the ground, and I just raged. Uh, and all this happened in front of we were all standing outside the gym waiting for our parents to pick us up after football practice, and finally a couple of the coaches come up and and pull me away, and screaming, you know, Barkley, Barkley. You know, and <laughs> at me, and uh, um, this they check on this young man, and and uh, and he was a bully, frankly. And they say, "Do you need to go to the hospital? Do you need to be checked on?" So his masculinity rears up, and he says, "No, no, no." You know, let me add, you know, kind of thing. And they're like, <laughs> "No," and I, I had literally just kicked his ass. I'm sorry, but, um, and and. But the coaches, like I, 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 you know, I say this, it's like it's 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 boy justice in in 1978 Texas, and in true today in a lot of places, nothing happened. We weren't reported to the principal. We didn't have. We weren't expelled from school. The coaches were the kings, you know. That's just two boys working it out. So we just all went home, and everything was ignored after that. But that was an example of how I would react. I never said anything to defend myself to these guys until I totally lost it. And so I, I, that was part of the hard work of being an adult. I got sober at 33, and oh, it was it was truly like starting over because – my coping mechanism was gone. Drinking, oh, you know. Yeah. We all cope in different ways. Mine was drinking, you know, and I didn't know how to cope with daily living, you know. I, what do you think about the role or the utility of that kind of boy justice today? Is there, uh, is there still a necessity for that in kids? You, you know, 
I look back on it now, and and um, I, I think in a lot of ways that that was over forty years ago. I like to think that coaches and teachers may be a little more sophisticated than that, or maybe a little more experienced in such things. I, I think if that would have happened today, rightfully so, I probably should have been suspended because, I mean, I caused harm to this guy. And, yes, he was being a bully. Um, I think that, that, that there's better ways to take up for yourself. Uh, in the end, though, um, you know, I see this happen a lot, not to get too controversial, but to where this is, you know, someone being a bully is reported to the teachers, it's reported to the administration, and they don't do anything about it. And if they're just going to allow it, despite knowing, despite despite being advised of the harm that, that this bully's bringing to others, then sometimes that may be necessary. I mean, I'm just being honest about my feelings. I hope not. Mm-hmm. But there reaches a point in those situations where you probably need to stick up for yourself if the adults aren't going to do anything about it. You know, in my case, I I think what I needed to learn from that is I never gave the adults a chance to do anything about it. I didn't report it. I didn't say, hey, this is happening. Nor did I even tell them, stop. I want you to stop. Don't do that anymore. Hmm. I was just silent and then repressed to the point of rage. Well, that's a very ownership mentality way to look at it, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the I, I do think there's a room for that or a necessity for that today too, because I think it's important to you know maybe not in the really dramatic like Hollywood way of like mm-hmm. your scenario, like the big fight and like you know mm-hmm. everyone like gives the the kid who was bullied a pat in the back and stuff. But maybe it's maybe more like just standing up for yourself in whatever context, you know. But I do think that's one of the things I that feels like is kind of becoming like not PC potentially, mm-hmm. or becoming like <clears throat> we should talk about everything, you know. But I don't know. I've, it's kind of the old trope, but like some people should have been punched in the face, you know. Like, <laughs> and, and maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but. I think that is kind of part of growing up, too. Yeah, and I also think that that, that for people that struggle with standing up, for people who may, and I count myself among them, you know, that kind of scared kid, you know, is still there inside me. You know, I have to, I have to work around him a lot and um, is still there. And I think that, that, that we all can learn to take up for ourselves. I mean, at a minimum, I could have said stop. At a minimum, I could have said don't do it anymore. And if it continued, I could have gone to a coach or I could have gone to the administration and given them the opportunity to do it. That's I think that's the preferred approach. Now, I have seen a couple of stories out there, one recently even in California, that where the school administration was aware of the Severity and extent of bullying on this 13, I mean, I was 13 at the time, on this 13-year-old kid. And yet nothing was done. 
and um, eventually caused this poor kid's death. I, I, I think when you reach a place where, where no one's going to do it, after you've checked all the boxes and no one's doing anything, then, yeah, maybe they do need to be kicked in the balls, you know. Um, so that's just my thoughts on it. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, but the yeah. adults need to do their bit. Right. In this scenario, you know what the I'm coaches, saying. The coaches had definitely observed that behavior. Yeah, if, you and know, they knew. And, it was and, 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 it, and in those days, you know, kind of that pushing and shoving and, and and getting in each other's faces was kind of encouraged because you know it led to you know that fierceness on the field. You know, when you were playing, and uh, or, or or that's what they thought that it led to, and um, so, but. You know, I think about that one instance, but I also made so many good friends on that football team. They're good, great guys that are very kind yeah. and very gentle and, and all that. This was just, a, you know, one scenario. Certainly an example of, 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 of how I repressed when I was younger and what the result was. I mean, but if I repressed with someone I loved in a relationship the way I did with that guy... And that would have been the result. And that could be really, really damaging. And um, so I think for me, the lesson to take away from it is not to repress and be a rager. My job is is to recognize when I'm feeling certain things and those feelings are impacting me and my sense of well-being and my ability to be a good partner, to be a good friend, to be a good employee and speak up and share those. And speak up and share in, in proximity to when 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 something is happening that's causing me the offense or the upset, you know, I, I you know I'm I'm an employer myself, and and, a, and sometimes when we have you know our folks are having a difficult time and something happened six or eight months ago, I often say, boy, I wish you would have let us know then, you know, and we could have mm. we could have looked at this way back then before it became something that, that, that had such a deleterious impact on you. And, you know, and I, I talk about as I go through kind of this, the, the up and downs that I went through in my book about being, I call it rigorous honesty. You know, it's a term that we use in recovery and it's a term that I like, but really it's, it means honesty. And that is, I think the one takeaway that I learned from my drinking life to my sober life is that life is so much easier when you're honest. Really. It, it's just really yeah. so much easier. Because yeah. <laughs> I was horrible at fibbing and lying oh, and, and, no. and covering for myself in my drinking days. And I got to tell you, it's exhausting. I mean, just exhausting to try to be a fake or to not tell the truth. But when you tell the truth, it, there's a, such a liberation to it. And there's a contract or a trust that we can build with ourselves too when we're honest that's right Internally. you know yeah and, and I think that and I didn't realize this probably till I wrote this book but when you do take up for yourself when you do speak your mind when you are honest with others and there is a self confidence confidence that grows inside you I can't explain why it happens. I don't know. Psychologically, I don't know why. Or mystically, I don't know why it happens. All I know is that as you're honest with others and you live life on life's terms, which is being truthful to those around you, 
with, with those around you, this confidence seems to build. And when you get that confidence, those things you once thought you could not do, all of a sudden you feel like you can, and you engage in those things. I have never seen anything give more confidence in people, you know, than telling the truth and being honest with those, with ourselves first and with those that we love. And I had two big things that I had to be honest with myself about. I refused to admit to myself that I was a gay man. I just wouldn't do it until I was, I was in my late 20s before I finally started subtly coming out. And I, I was just going to be straight because that's what I wanted. Being gay totally screwed up my game plan for my life, you know, in my own head. And, uh, but I was gay. I mean, I can make all, you know, you can do all you want. That's just the way it is. I can assure any view, any listener you may have out there, it, being gay is not, a, sexual orientation is not a choice. It is an innate part of who you are. It can't be changed. And, because I tried with great self-will, I might add. And, and, but when you start that process, and then I, I lied to myself about being an alcoholic for a long, long time. But when you start that process of being honest, it doesn't matter what it is. For me, it was just drinking and being gay were the big deals. But it doesn't matter what it is. Honesty gives you power, a self-power that's it's just hard. I don't know why it does, but it just does. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's... It's living in alignment, I think, because thinking about the conscious mind and the subconscious, you know, there's an analogy that the conscious mind is the tip of the iceberg and the subconscious is the iceberg, the body of the iceberg under the water. And the subconscious knows, right? For in that example, the subconscious knew that you were gay. And so you had this huge misalignment of the conscious mind and the subconscious for all those years. And so that's why... I think whenever we are honest with ourselves about the things about ourselves we don't like or the things we're afraid of or the things other people have taught us to be ashamed of, when we accept those things and don't ignore them, then it, then the power comes. Yeah. 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 And well, I think, that, yeah. and I, I, I think there's something to this idea of congruency that when you really align who you are with what you do, then there's just a tremendous power that, that comes with that. And there's yeah. a peace that comes with it. Not only is there power that comes with it, there is a peace that comes with it that's just hard to explain. And it's a beautiful thing to, to, to be, to live. Um, yeah. Well said. So fast forwarding to that time when you know you hit your rock bottom, you're back at home with your parents, and this also reintroduces a complicated figure back into your life very directly, right? In your dad, yeah, it does. It <laughs> does, man. You nailed it, man. <laughs> yeah, it does. Oh man. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Bro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. 
If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at bronouveau.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. I, I, I moved back. My dad was a... a, a hard drinking active alcoholic till the day he died and um so i move home you know really at the at, at, at the low ebb of my life so he and i you know are doing a lot of drinking and and um i finally my dad had to go on the road for a job and uh one day i i woke up in the garage i would drink a lot in the garage you know and I woke up in the garage and I had pissed on myself and, and crapped on myself and I was laying there and I had a broken beer bottle by me and I was total mess, just a total mess. And I, I managed to get up and I had this bottle of Valium that, that I'd been given for anxiety. And I, and I thought to myself, I can't, I can't live with alcohol anymore, and I can't live without it either. I I I I I I I can't do this. I just can't live. And so I got that Valium, and I found my dad. My dad had a bottle of Jack Daniels, and I retrieved it. And I was going to do it. I just said, you know, this is enough already. But, but but I remember a buddy of mine who was a doctor. His name was AJ, a lovely man. And AJ always kept saying, I wish you'd call Hazelton. You know, Hazelton's a great place to help people that drink and drug too much. And, and I wish you would think about it. He never wagged his finger at me. He said, you know, Tate, just think about it. So literally holding that Valium and, 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 and Jack Daniels in my hand, I said, you know what? I owe it to him. He said, let me call him. And this guy on the phone that got on the phone with me, his name was Ted. This guy was must have been a master. Because he had me on the phone talking and asking and conjoling and telling stories and asking about Texas. And the next thing I know, it's two and a half late, two and a half hours later that I've been on the phone with this guy. And I'd sobered up a little bit. And he was at Hazleton. And he says, you know what, Tate? He says, I... I have a spot for you, you know, on this was the day was January 2nd. And he says, I have a spot for you on January 8th. Will you please come up here? It was in Minnesota. And and I'm a southern boy and it's January in <laughs> Minnesota. And I'm I'm not liking the 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 the, the idea of that, but and I just told him, yeah, I'll come see you. And he says, you know what? I need, would you just call me in the morning so we can do it? And I said, I got a problem. I don't really have any money. He says, I don't care. Just call me in the morning. In a fit of real paranoia in my final days of drinking before I lost my law practice, one of my best friends, his name was Greg from college, I had wired he and his wife 20 grand because you know to, to save for me because you know the people are coming to get me and I called my buddy Greg 
And I said, do you have any of that 20 grand left? And he said, I invested it for you because I figured you were going to need it one day. So my buddy said, you know, uh, uh, let me call Hazleton and I'll take care of everything. So all I had to do was get a plane ticket up there and January 8th started my journey to sobriety. Uh, Yeah. Wow. And Ted, did you meet Ted in person? I did. I did. I did. And and he was this just real uh, big guy, you know. And, you know, here he was in Center City, Minnesota, and he wore Western suits and cowboy boots. So, (laughs) and he's like, do people wear Western suits and, you know, down there in Houston? I didn't have the heart to tell him, you know, at the time, you know, not really. Um, but, oh, yeah, 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 man. You'd fit right in down there, Ted, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, yeah, I did meet Ted. And Ted, before I left, I was 28 days in treatment up there. And I, I got to tell you, I loved being institutionalized. I got to tell you. <laughs> because... You know, I didn't realize how unstructured my life was. I didn't help. But, but you know, for, for those of your listeners who have been through this before, you know, you're, it's a very hyper-structured environment whenever you're in treatment. And I really thrived on a hyper-structured environment. So I kind of took that away from treatment with me is to, to kind of plan my day because if I have, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, if an alcoholic has too much time to think about himself, then, then the drink's not too far away. So, so as long as I kind of stay busy doing something productive, I was better. But, man, I really, I, I did. I got to tell you, I thrived. And Ted, speaking of Ted, he introduced me. They had this great program where wherever you were going home to, and for me, I was going home to Houston, which is a big place. And um, they had an alumni of Hazelden who was also an attorney. I was a lawyer. He was older than me. He did trial work like I did. So, you know, we lived and died in the courtroom. And um, uh, he hooked me up with him. And so when I got back to Houston, I immediately had someone to talk to that not only was in recovery, but was in the same profession that I was. And this guy, Hank, later became my first sponsor in recovery, that's someone who works with you as you go through the steps. And, um, you know, helped get me a couple of gigs, part-time gigs as a lawyer to ease myself back in. So it was really, you know, I was I was so fortunate, Thomas, in so many ways. You know, I had so many angels enter my life at just the right time who helped me that didn't have to. And, um, and, and certainly he was one of them. Yeah. So this, this concept of angels, I know, is something key to your book. So w- yeah. what is what does that mean to you? You know, for me, you know, angel is 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 practically speaking for me is is someone who who helps, and they really don't have to. And like Hank, my first sponsor was an angel. This guy Ted was an angel. My friend Greg, he was an angel. He, you know, I. Uh, he took care of everything financially so I could so I could go to treatment. And um, 
Speaking of my dad, when you said introducing an element into my life when I had to go home, you know, when I lost everything, my dad picks me up from the airport. I fly home from Hazleton from Minnesota, and my dad picks me up from the airport drunk. (laughs) So Classic. Yeah. (laughs) It was classic. (laughs) And as, as we weave our way literally down the freeways of Houston, heading back to my mom and dad's house, you know, my sister shows up. And my mom had made supper for us. And my sister asked my mom. My, my sister, I, this one particular sister kept in contact with me in treatment. And she kept asking, how can I help? How can I help? And I said, the people up here say go to an Al-Anon meeting, which is, you know, a, 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 a kind of a recovery group for people who, are, who love alcoholics and addicts. And um, so she took my mom to an Al-Anon meeting. And... My sister very innocently asked, once we get home, and my father's still raging drunk, Mom, have you gone into any more Al-Anon meetings? And then my dad just got this wide-eyed angry and looked at my mom and said, Oh, so you went to one of those meetings. Is the next thing you're going to do is try to make me stop drinking? What in the hell? I mean, he just raged at her. And, and one of my issues with my mom and my with my dad throughout my life was the way he treated my mom. He could be emotionally and verbally abusive almost all the time, and sometimes physically abusive, which made me hate him. And and I had a key moment there, and my baby sister, who had just gotten married three months ago and was you know a newlywed, reaches over and touches my hand, and she says. You need to come live with me. You can't live here anymore. And it was such a special moment. And and I remember thinking that tension was, no, I need to stay here to be that shield for mom. But that wasn't prioritizing my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I, that was my first big decision when I got out, if you will, from mm-hmm. you know rehab was because I'd been drinking inside three days if I had to stay with my dad. I just knew I would have. So I just, my, you know, my brother-in-law was an angel. He had married my sister. They'd been married three months. And think about it. You're unemployed, out of work, alcoholic brother-in-law is coming to live with you within three months of marrying your wife. So, <laughs> I mean, think about that. Uh, so he was an angel. You know, he didn't have to help. He's just a brother-in-law. But boy, he he did. And 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 even better, he was so and he was so gracious about it. He was always so gracious and deferential to me, and just a lovely man. And he didn't have to be, but he was. You know, and that made things so much easier for me in those early days. Your sister as well. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, she was a trooper, and 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 uh, and, and she had been, you know, when somebody needs, they need, and and um, I think when we love people, uh, we have to recognize they're gonna inconvenience us. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they're just sure. gonna inconvenience us, <laughs> and. Um, we have to decide whether we're going to make them feel bad about it or whether we're going to welcome them. And certainly my sister 
never made me feel bad about needing her, ever. And uh, for that, I am very, very grateful. And, and, and when I think about love, and my mom was always that way too, when I think about love, that's kind of what love means to me. I mean, it, it means that you're going to be aggravated and you're going to be inconvenienced, but you don't have to make the other person feel bad about it, you know. Sometimes people need help. They just do. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And on a less intense level or a more day-to-day level, I found that too in in my personal relationship, right, with my girlfriend, where I've observed in myself that I have to make that same choice of, of course there are things everyone's going to annoy about us, annoy us mm-hmm. about. So there are things, but... I kind of recently had the realization or kind of a mind shift where I have to actually celebrate those things and accept those things as part of who she is if this relationship is going to be sustainable long term. And these are very, very minor, right? I'm not talking about like big issues. And I realized actually it's more me, my tendency to be critical for example or my tendency to blame if I don't want to accept the blame oh this situation happened it must be your fault <laughs> which is mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I'm like why I don't treat anyone like that in my life why would I why in the hell would I ever treat my lovely girlfriend like that right. you know but there's something I think about that proximity when we get to people that it's easy yeah. and maybe you had a similar learning with your first with your husband right mm-hmm. like if it was your first open, vulnerable relationship. And, you know, I did. And, and you know, I, I, I kid, but it's the truth that that I didn't have a relationship longer than, you know, three, three or four months until I met my husband. And, uh, and I think for him, you know, part of when I, uh, you know, I kind of like a hyper-structured life. And... As part of that, I like things in their place. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like clutter mm-hmm. and at all. And, um, <laughs> so, um, whereas my husband, he's a little, a lot more. And I know this is a small example, but it's huge because this is a daily life thing. You know, I think anything that affects our daily life with the person we love is important. And um, so he's a lot more of a clutterer, you know. I don't do dishes in the sink. He's kind of okay with it, you know, for a while, you know. <laughs> Boy. So that was a tension, you know, for me. That was a tension. How, how we, you know handled it is if the dishes were that big of a deal to me then I can do the dishes and he can do something else and we still kind of have that tension but you know what I love him and I'm like okay with it and there's stuff that little stacks of his stuff all over the house and you know what I just I'm kind of okay I recognize that he's also the kindest most wonderful patient person with me that I've ever met in my entire life and I remember that (laughs) and we also made this other deal that I have my office and he has his studio he's a he likes to paint and do all that so my office is very neat 
Right. And that's my place. You know what I mean? So if it's just <laughs> all too much for me, I can go to my place. You yeah. know, <laughs> and, and my place has everything I need in it. It's got music. It's got TV. It's got laptop. It's got everything I need. Okay? So <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I love it. Your safe space. <laughs> that's right. From the clutter. From the clutter. Save me from the clutter. I know. Used to be drinking. Now it's clutter. (laughs) So, you know, I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Awesome, Tate. Well, we're coming up on time, but I want to thank you so much for, you know, sharing your hard-earned wisdoms and being so open. And I hope, too, that, you know, we were able to encourage some men listening to be more open with themselves and other people as well. Mm-hmm. Listen, thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Likewise. And where can folks find your memoir, uh, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men? Yeah, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men is, is publishing September 25th, so here pretty quick. And they can find it on bookshop.org if you'd like to buy independently. It'll also be on Amazon, uh, of course, .com. You can get it on Amazon. Available through barnesandnobles.com as well. And uh, it'll be here and there in various bookstores also, if, if you kind of like the bookstore thing better. And uh, you can follow me on Tate Barkley on Facebook, uh, barkley.tate on Instagram. And then my website is tatebarkley.com. And you can get a free excerpt from the book on tatebarkley.com if you go there. And you can do it and download it. So, and get shoot me a note, and I'll shoot you a note right back. Awesome. Well, good luck. Congratulations on, on publishing it, and hope it's a, a great success. I appreciate it. Thank you again, folks. Thanks, Tate.